When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, we're bombarded with a lot of grinding negative stories these days. And then you run into someone like Nika Jones-Tapia, who is a great American story. As a young person, she faced adversity, and that experience helped prod her to become an impactful force in helping others in need. She made history as the warden of the Cook County Jail, the country's largest jail. What made that most noteworthy is that Nika's a clinical psychologist, not a corrections officer, and she dealt with the very significant mental health needs of the population that passed through that jail. I sat down with her the other day to talk about these challenges in a country where incarceration, with all its collateral damages, is a major social challenge. Nika Jones-Tapia, so good to see you again. Uh, you were a splendid fellow at the Institute of Politics at Thank the University you. of Chicago this uh, this spring, but uh, we didn't get a chance to sit down and talk about your whole story, which is an inspiring one. But tell me about your upbringing in uh, North Carolina. What what what's the name of your town? Grifton, Grifton, North Carolina. So it's a it's a pretty small town in eastern North Carolina, population of about twenty five hundred individuals. Um, you know it, the the it's about one and a half square miles altogether. So pretty small. One stoplight, one grocery store. Um, I uh, grew up there. I am. Um, the product of uh, a mother and a father who really cared about, you know, making sure that their children had exposure to um, Afrocentric things. And it was pretty interesting that at the time I didn't recognize that we came from a low income family, but looking back on it now, we were low Mm -hmm. income. We lived in a, 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 a double wide trailer my dad, though, was pretty artistic. So his name, Robert, mm-hmm. Robert C. Jones. They call him R.C. lovingly. And so he painted the walls in these, you know, uh, rich colors. And so when you walked in the house, you just felt like you were not in a low income environment. And then when you walk into the front door, you were greeted by a large frame picture of a black Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my dad, it was important for him to, you know, even name me an Afrocentric name. So my name is Nigerian uh-huh. and it means my mother is supreme. So for his daughters, he wanted us to understand that we were princesses and he wanted us to appreciate where we came from and our culture. And um, yeah. And he uh, and he he sold African art. Yes. Yes, he did. Yes. 
You know, he um, right there in Grifton, right there in Grifton. So my dad is an asthmatic. And so he would have a lot of difficulty working in different environments because his asthma would flare up. So then he started to just create his own statues. And they were usually African statues of black Jesus or black prayer hands, things like that, and sold them. In fact, my mom and I used to help him sell them at local flea markets. Uh, And she was a dialysis nurse. Yes, yes, yes. She was a dialysis nurse. And I remember many times going to work with her and helping other nurses. And, you know, she was always in the helping profession. And so I think that's what really inspired me to really go into a helping profession as well. Now, when you were eight, something happened that shaped your whole life. Yes. Talk about that. Yes. So actually, even a few times before I was eight, my father was incarcerated. But oddly enough, I don't really remember those times. The The one time, the last time that he was incarcerated, that's the time that stands out in my mind. I was in the third grade. I was eight years old. I remember being at home, sitting on the couch, and, um, you know... I, because the double wide trailer had aluminum siding, mm-hmm. um, you know, you could hear things outside pretty, pretty eagerly. And so at one point, people started beating on all sides of the house. So, mm. of course, it scared me. I'm eight years old. Yes. Luckily, my sister. Anybody. Yes. Luckily, my sister was there with me, who is six years my senior. So mm. she was, uh, you know, about what 14 mm-hmm. at the time. And so we answered the door and it was officers armed with rifles and they said they were looking for my father. He wasn't home at the time. So we let them know where he was. They went they to get him. Like sheriff's Sheriff's police. officers. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And it was quite a few. You know, I, I can't really remember how many, more than a dozen. And so we let them know where he was and they went down to the park to get him. And obviously it wasn't Did something. you follow them down? Or? No, no. My sister and I stayed at the house. And I, I remember just staying planted on the couch, watching all of this unfold. And it wasn't something where they put my father in the car because they thought he would flee or they thought he was violent. No, they let him ride his bike home. So that tells you, you know, that it wasn't a grave situation where they felt like they should have, you know, approached our house with rifles. So my dad rode his bike back to the house and, you know, I watched the officers just search our whole home. And then they searched my dad and, you know, he kept looking at me and telling me everything is okay. He stayed calm through the whole incident. And I, oddly enough, was calm too. And so my sister and I just sat there and watched them take my father away. And why did they take him away? I believe he was officially charged with possession of marijuana. Uh-huh. Just possession. He wasn't selling marijuana. He he just had marijuana. Yeah, I don't know the, you know, the specifics of it, but when I talk to him, he tells me that it was, you know, turned out to be a possession. He ended up spending two years in prison. For possession of marijuana. Yes, yes. And this uh and and, and that's that's what they sent uh all of those officers for, yes. For incredible. You know, you talk about traumatic. That was, and and again, for me to be 40 years old now and that picture to resonate in my mind so so vividly, I know how that experience really molded me. Let me ask you, I'm trying to look at this through the eyes of an eight-year-old, but also through the eyes of your dad. Yes. uh, And um, what it must have been like to be led out 
uh, and have your kids watch this happen. Do you, do you, was he looking at you guys? Did he say anything to you? you? You know, throughout it all, he just kept saying that everything was going to be okay. I think it was important for him, for us to remain calm. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was calm, although that's what he portrayed to us. Um, of course, it's upsetting to him to have to leave his family. And, and then on top of that, to have your two daughters to see you being taken away. I couldn't imagine having that experience. You know, we never talked about what that day meant to him. But we just made sure that we maintained, you know, the connection with each other. Because my brother and my sister were so much older than I was, my brother is 15 years older than I am. You know, it was important for me to have that bond with them so that in spite of my father not being there, I still had a very good support system. Mm. And you... uh I, I read somewhere that you guys would go over and, and have dinner with him. Yes, yes. Was this in a state? It was in a state correctional facility. Uh-huh. And times were much different then. So this was the 80s. And you could take food into the prison. And, I mean, this is the, the strength of my mother. She would work two and three jobs and still come home and on Saturday evening cook dinner so that we could pack it up in picnic baskets and take it to the prison. Every Sunday we had dinner with my father. And my brother was the driver. Uh-huh. So the whole family. The whole family. Yeah. And what and, and, and what did you guys did you what you just talked about what happened that week or you when or did you would, talk about his own situation? No. No, I mean, I would update him on school. I was always so proud to show him my grades. He was always so proud of the grades that all of us had. And then we would leave time for my parents to engage. And they had a little playground near the picnic benches where all of the families would sit. And I remember playing on the playground. Hmm. And and what did you, now you're a, and we'll get to how you got there. Yes. But you're a clinical psychologist and you've, had a lot of exposure. We'll also get to what you're doing now, but you've had a lot of exposure to young people who've been separated from their uh, from their parents yes. uh, as a result of incarceration. Uh, what do you recognize in yourself uh, as uh, the impact of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. I- the people around me made a difference. So one, I'll tell you about the negative impact. There were so many children my age, as well as adults, sad but true, that would taunt me and my siblings because they knew that my father was incarcerated. You know, they would say things like, you're never going to be anything. They wouldn't let, adults wouldn't let their children play with my sister and I, because we were the younger ones. And they would openly tell us why. So, you know, that was, that was, you know, a shameful experience. Yes, yes. And, you know, from, you know, the- Were you angry uh, about that? Oh, of course. And were you angry at you? Were you angry at them? Or did you feel any kind of anger toward your dad? I didn't have the anger towards my dad because I always felt this closeness with him. No matter where he was, whether he was incarcerated or he was at the home, we always had this bond. And, you know, I'm the baby of the family. And so I think that meant 
something to me. And, you know, but my anger was more towards the adults, the other adults. I, I wasn't really angry with the children. Even at eight years old, I recognized that adults should have handled the situation better. And, um, you know, if it wasn't for the protection I had of my family bonds, I think that would have had a greater impact on me. And um, I know that there were other people in the community who were, were supportive as well. As yes. A, so talk about that and what that meant to you. Well, I played sports. I, I played sports and I had a softball coach, Mr. Oakley. And we never really talked about what happened with my dad, but he made sure that I made it to softball practice. He would come and pick me up in his pickup truck and me, him and his daughter would ride to softball practice. That meant something to me because one, I was a part of a team and two, I had someone else looking out for me. I always knew my family was going to look out for me, but to have this person who didn't know me to reach back and say, I'm going to do all I can to help you because I see some potential in you. That was incredible to me and very meaningful. There were many other people like that, but he stood out. Um, teachers. I, I always excelled academically, but there were some teachers that really took to me. So one teacher, Ms. Riccarelli, she used to make sure that I could stay after school with her. And she used to always give me a butterscotch as I helped her clean up her classroom. You know, those are the hours of the day, those after school hours yeah. where children really need that support. Yeah. And they offered it. Yeah. You know, just I just want to back up for one second. I'm, uh, do you, any idea, did you, did you ever have any idea why your father in particular was was I mean, targeted for this search and arrest? You know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. You know, the, the town where we grew up, um, you know, it's it, like I said, it's pretty small. Everyone knows everyone. Is it a diverse town or? Uh, it's about two thirds white, one third, I mean, one third African-American. Um, the, the living spaces are pretty much segregated, mm -hmm. but because the town is so small, you know, there was a lot of communing in, in the in the community. And so, you know, at their local grocery store, we would see each other. You know, it, it never made sense to me why he was targeted. You know, he, I can tell you my dad was very outspoken. You know, not only was he Afrocentric in the home, but my dad's store had the red, black, and green flag flying from it. You know, mm -hmm. he was, people knew what he stood for. So, And were these, uh, uh, were these sheriff deputies all white? I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But you think that he may have been targeted because he was seen as a rabble rouser? That's a possibility. You know, mm -hmm. at, at that age, I really didn't consider, you know, what that meant or what the possibility was and why he might have been a target. For me, it was just as simple as my father was gone. Yeah. You know, we have, uh, you know better than I, uh, you know, penitentiaries filled with people who have been convic convicted of low-level Yes drug crimes two years for possession of i mean i don't know how much marijuana there was or was if there was any but right. that's a long time that is that is and again i don't know the specifics of his case we never talked about it again 
to I think my father wanted us to focus less on that period and that incident and more on the bond that we had. Um, but but yes, you're right. You know, it's our, our prisons are filled with individuals that are charged with nonviolent offenses. Yeah. Who are separated from their family. Yes. You um, uh, but you you mentioned that you um, that you. Uh, excelled academically. Yes. Uh, did you always know that you were going to go and pursue higher education? How did that? I knew I was going to go to college, and I knew I was going to. Did go your siblings to... go? Yes, mm-hmm. my sister did. My brother went into the military. Uh-huh. Um, I knew that I was going to go to college, and I knew I was going to UNC Chapel Hill. You did. So when it was time to apply for college, that was the only college I applied to. So thank goodness I got in. Yeah. But you didn't know going in what it was that you were going to study. No, I didn't. I did not. um, So when I first started at UNC Chapel Hill, I was actually a biology major because in, in high school and middle school, I loved science. But I'll tell you, when I took my first science class at UNC Chapel Hill, I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm in weight over my head. And um, I then quickly decided I needed to change my major. <laughs> Psychology was the popular major at the time. And so that's just why I picked it. And, and uh, you took a class that spoke to you. Yes. And your own experience. Yes. Tell me about that. So in one class, um, it was risk and resiliency. And in reading one of the book chapters on risk, that was the first time that it hit me that I was an at-risk youth. Because like I said, I had all of these protective factors around me that I excelled and I didn't have trouble excelling. And so for me, I couldn't comprehend how I was still identified as an at-risk youth. I I really, you know, it it didn't sit well with me because I felt as if I was being um, degraded to a statistic and I never wanted to be a statistic. Uh Uh-huh. You also fit the other category, too, resiliency. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And that did not, I didn't understand that, though, at the time. The risk factors are what spoke to me, and I just, that, it angered me. It angered me to the point that I remember um, challenging my professor, and um, we talked a little bit after that class, and, you know, that was when she pointed out to me those resilience factors that I had that, you know, really set the stage for future success. Did you, and was that class, uh, was that pivotal in terms of what you decided you wanted to do? No, I'll tell you what was the pivotal moment. So, you know, my father had been incarcerated, yes, but it was really the incarceration of other people in my life that I loved. And there was one person in particular who had gotten incarcerated and my family got the call that he wasn't doing well. And when we, you know, heard the distress in the person's voice, you know, we were concerned then, you know, emotionally, mentally, they felt like he was on, you know, he was not doing well. Just I'll just say that. And so we drove um, to the correctional facility where he was to visit him. And when I looked 
at that person, I, I recognized that he was a shell of who he used to be. And we then engaged, my sister is an assistant district attorney. And so, you know, she spoke the legalese and she engaged the, um, the jailers. And we talked to them about what we could do to make sure he was going to be safe. And so they, you know, watched him closely and we were able to call the jail, make sure he was okay because this was in a different state. And, you know, seeing that resonated with me so much that it hit me that had he not had the support of family, there's no telling what he would have done. And so now, you know, fast forward almost 20 years later, he's very successful. And, mm. you know, I I actually am very proud of the changes that he's been able to make. But we all recognize that a lot of that is due to the support that he had of his family. And did you decide at that moment, I'm going to I'm going to pursue these degrees, I'm going to become a psychologist, and I'm going to help people who are in this situation? Yes, that was that was really the turning point that made me decide that I wanted to be a psychologist and I wanted to be a psychologist in correctional institutions because I recognize that so many people don't have that support system. And I wanted to still be, I wanted them to still have that opportunity, even if it didn't come from family. And you came to, to Cook County originally as part of your graduate yes. training the, the, uh, on an internship yes. to work at the Cook County Jail. You wanted to work at the Cook County I Jail. I wanted to work at the Cook County Jail. I had never been to Chicago before. So um, it was a new experience. I had, you know, didn't know anything about Chicago other than what I had seen in the movies. And um, yeah, I just knew that if I was going to go into corrections, that I wanted to have that experience at one of the largest correctional institutions. And and which the Cook County Jail certainly is. yes yes um, and what was uh, but but you it almost didn't happen right they they canceled your internship oh my goodness that was traumatic you know the first day on the job there were I believe seven of us um, the chief psychologist at the time called us to the conference room and he said I'm sorry to tell you that your internship is canceled the county doesn't have money to pay you. I mean, this is after I you know, loaded everything up from North Carolina and moved to to Chicago, actually from Virginia and moved to Chicago. I was devastated. And um, one of the, the psychologists there looked at me and um, he said, don't worry, we'll get you your job back. Huh. Yeah. And, and what did you what what was your first impression when you came to to the to the jail, the largest county jail? in the country. Yes, the largest single site jail in the country. You know, I think I thought I was pretty well reserved, but I think my fear showed on my face because I remember one of the female sergeants stopped me and, you know, she was all of about 5'4 and she looked down at me, you know, I'm 5'10. So she's, you know, looking at me over her glasses and she said, you know, baby, I don't know what you're going to make it, but this ain't no Pacific Palisade. So get it together. <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment, I recognized, OK, the fear is showing on my face. Let me pull myself together and um, follow her. And so following her around and just watching her take control of situations, I was in awe. And I learned very quickly how to be comfortable in a correctional institution. And um, 
You know, I, I, Tom Dart, who's the sheriff of Cook County, who was your boss uh, over the years there, um, uh, was on this podcast, and he was also a fellow at the Institute of Politics, and he talked about his—Tom comes from a prosecutorial background. Yes. And he, ta- and he put a lot of people in prison, and he, I'm sure he was responsible for people go- many people going to the jail— he got over there and he said, I had to uh, confront the fact that we were running uh, the world's uh, largest mental health facility. Yes. Um, but that, and he changed a lot of things. You were central to those changes. Uh, talk about that revelation and how it changed the way policy worked at uh, at the at the Cook County Jail. Yes. So, um when I first started at the jail, I was working with the hospital system. Yes. And so I had a different perspective. And at that time, back in 2006, we had about 1,000 inmates that were cared for on our mental health caseload. And even just those 1,000 individuals seemed daunting. And to see the level of illness um, was incredible. But then when you look back over the years, those numbers quickly grew. And by 2010, 2011, we had doubled that number of people that were being treated for a mental illness. That's really when the light bulb went off for me. And Now, was that doubling because of the efforts that you made to identify people who needed treatment? Or was there some sort of, uh, uh, you know, vast increase in the number of people who came in with, with mental health problems? I think there were multiple reasons. You know, one of them was because we had improved our, our assessment tool to be able to identify more people. But I don't think that fully captures the, the essence of why those numbers went up. There were a number of mental health closures throughout the state that I do believe impacted that. You know, be, And I do believe that because in engaging with many of the individuals that we were caring for, they would say, I couldn't get my medicine. I couldn't couldn't see my doctor. And so hearing those stories time and time again, you begin to wonder what opportunities they could have had had they had access to treatment before they were incarcerated. There were big cuts at the state and city levels in mental health services. So you saw a palpable kind of relationship between those cuts. Yes. Uh, I think uh, that... uh, I have uh, written down here, Illinois made the fourth largest cuts to mental health care services of any state in the country, reducing appropriations by over 31%, a third. Yes. Uh, and you saw the human toll of that. Yes, yes. And, you know, to, to, to see mothers and fathers that were in our custody for reasons that they couldn't control, it was heartbreaking you know, because there is a hidden victim in all of that. And again, that's that family. Mm-hmm. So not only were we incarcerating the individual, but as a byproduct, we were negatively impacting those families. Yeah. And and we should point out that there are people who are in the jail accused of violent crimes, oh, heinous yes. crimes. But there are a lot of people there who simply, who are in there for petty crimes and couldn't make bond had their hearings delayed for months. Yes. Uh, 
And many of those may are, are some of the people who you are talking about. Yes, yes. You know, yes, there were individuals that were in our custody that were in for some of those more heinous crimes. And I'm definitely not talking about those individuals. But, you know, they have stories, too. Yes. And and they also, you know, when you listen to those stories, you can envision the cycle that they endured that led to some of their behaviors. And I learned very early on not to pay attention to the some you know what someone was charged with, and really pay attention to the person. I really did not want to reduce them to their charge. But mm-hmm. yes, to your point of those nonviolent. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to suggest that. I, oh I, no! All not I'm at saying all. is that there are a lot of people in the jail. You have this impression that everybody in the jail is there because uh, they were they're accused of some violent crime, but. There are many people there who right. who who are in there for shoplifting. Yes, yes. Petty crimes and just can't get out. And just can't get out because they don't have the money to pay their bond. And and many people that had engaged in what we call crimes of survival, they they would steal bread so that they could eat. They would trespass on uh, on a store's property because they didn't have a place to lay their head. Those are the stories that I think you know we talk about more often because those are the people that really shouldn't be incarcerated. You know, jails and prisons are meant for people that commit those violent acts, not for these individuals that you know had it not been for poverty or had it not been for a lack of education or had it not been for a mental illness that they wouldn't be there yeah you talked about uh, um, people's stories um, the the dis- very disproportionate number of people or, or nature of people in the jail are they tend to come from uh, impoverished parts of uh, the city yes. and every I think it's well known that we've had tremendous uh, waves of violence uh, in Chicago, yes. gang-related in particular. Uh, what impact does it have on people to live in that environment? You know, any exposure to violence will increase our likelihood of acting out. But understand this, if if I'm growing up in an environment where I have to live in fear, I'm either going to respond by fighting or I'm going to flee. If I can't flee, then I have to protect myself. You know, that's an innate human response to protect ourselves. And of course, when you live in fear and you act out of fear, there are bound to be mistakes. And, you know, many of the individuals that I would engage with that had committed those violent acts or were accused of committing those violent acts talked about how they didn't feel like they had a choice. And, you know, some people don't get me wrong, acted on their own will. And, you know, there are some people in this world that just commit evil acts to commit them. But the young men and women that I would engage with more oftentimes had histories of trauma that were left untreated and really, you know, had that spiral downward because those traumas were untreated. We should point out that, (laughs) excuse me, we should point out that uh, you became, uh, first you were the chief psychologist of the CIRMAC Health Services, which is the health services with uh, four people who were at the jail. Yes. But uh, 
you then became first assistant executive director at the jail yes uh to focus on this mental health issue and then uh in 2015 you became the executive director of the cook yes. county jail essentially you were the warden of the cook county jail yes uh th this was a path-breaking appointment because not only are you a woman yes uh, but you're not a corrections you, the, your background wasn't in corrections it was in mental health right talk to me about that responsibility of taking over the the, the largest single standing jail facility in the in the country yes you know it was definitely a learning curve for me because at that point, I had really only focused on mental health and the care of the inmates. So to take on the care of all of the inmates um, and then to... What percentage, I should ask, I'm sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, what percentage were you treating? Uh... At that time, about 30% of the inmates were being treated for mental illness. And they were all evaluated when they came in? Was Everyone it... receives an evaluation when they come that in. That was something that you guys implemented. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And so early on, even before I you know, started at the jail, they would screen inmates. We really revamped the whole intake process at the jail so that they would have a more robust assessment and get treatment pretty quickly and early on. And so those were some of the changes that we made. And, um, you know, to go from tending to 30% to now 100% of the population and to also contend with, you know, the, the issues that the staff may, you know, present to you, those were all daunting. But I had Well, the staff itself, I mean, there's a culture to correctional officers. They have their own sort of mores and methods and so on that uh, I'm sure you had to you had to confront and work with. Well, luckily for me, as the psychologist there, I had established some pretty good relationships with many of the correctional staff, and I appreciated the work that mm -hmm. they, um, you know, that they did. And so I think when I was appointed as executive director, I, I landed a little softer because I already had established some of those good relationships. You have such a good relationship with them that you ended up marrying a correctional <laughs> officer. So. Yes, yes. Um, and... Um, so what were the what were the challenges to you uh, being a clinical psychologist, African American mm -hmm. woman, uh, young? Yes, taking on what is a pretty tough environment. Yes, you know I had a great team. I still had my challenges, but they they really educated me, and I had to be open to learning. That I knew that had to come first, and so. I had to hear from the experiences of the officers and better understand, you know, what they were contending with and not just look at things from the perspective of the inmate and really trying to balance, you know, what I did for the staff and what I did for the inmates. That was that was one challenge. And, you know, then I'll also say, you know, of course, there was the challenge of trying to, you know, understand a system that I didn't understand. You know, I saw all too often so many people that were incarcerated that really needed to be in a hospital. And so trying to explore ways that, you know, we could collaborate with our justice partners so that we could get the right people out quickly, you know, that was a challenge as well, but one that we were able to do. 
Well, what about sexism? You know, I, I think that historically sexism was, you know, pretty prevalent. I, you know, decided I needed to just focus on the work. There was so much work that was, you know, needed that I just I, I had tunnel vision. So all of those things, you know, racism, sexism, I tried not to focus on them because it would have taken away from my ability to do the work. Yeah. And it, uh, you you can only, uh, you know, you can't separate out the jail from the environment outside. Right. I mean, there are gangs outside. There are gangs represented by the people who are inside. Yes. Sometimes violence erupts inside the jail. Yes. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? You know, much like I think the story that has been portrayed about Chicago, I think the same thing happened with the jail. So many people focused on you know the violence, and they thought that that's what you know we experienced every day, and that really wasn't what it was. And much like Chicago, there was so much beauty going on there. Even in the midst of this negative environment, you know, you would see officers that, you know, are meant to be this authoritative figure really being touted as more maternal and paternal figures to inmates. And you would see the connection that many of them would establish. And and the officers really modeled wonderful behavior for the inmates. You know, we were able to establish some pretty incredible programs there. And so there was a well, talk lot. Talk about those because, yeah. you know, you had educational programs going on. You had, yes. You had... Um, uh, as we've spoken about, mental health treatment going yes. on. What other things? Yeah, we started job training programs. So we, um, we of course, the jail having well now about 6,000 inmates, we would have to feed those inmates three times a day. So we ran a kitchen there, and inmates would work in the kitchen, yet we weren't giving them a certification. So we worked with the Restaurant Association to get them their food handler certification so that when they were released, they were more likely to be able to be employed. Um, you know, we taught skills like gardening and horticulture and housekeeping skills, um, building and construction, you know, trying to do as much as we could to increase the level of success for these men and women when they left our custody. You created something called the uh, Supportive Release uh, Center. Yes. And that's all part of this to try and ensure a a better reentry. Yes, yes. And so we, we recognized early on that the most important piece, once we had gotten the internal programs established, was then to move to what they were going to receive on the outside. And so we worked with community partners to establish a transitional housing unit so that they could meet with caseworkers and social workers and really get a more comprehensive plan. Because at the jail, unlike a prison, we never knew when someone was going to leave. Mm -hmm. And so there was only so much preparation we can do. And so to give ourselves a, a wider time frame, we created this support supportive release center so that we had the person for 24 hours, they could get a shower, they could get a meal, and they can meet with someone to really help them to navigate obstacles that they were going to encounter when they went into the community. And Nika, what, what are the what are the results of that? I mean, are, are there, is there empirical data about, about uh, how these changes have impacted on the 
success of, of people who have passed through the jail? And, and are there particular stories that stand out in your mind? Yes. So right now, we're working with the University of Chicago to study the impact of the Supportive Release Center. So I don't have empirical data there, but I'll tell you what did work very well that we created internal that we do have empirical data on is the Mental Health Transition Center. Mm-hmm. So that was, um, we created that in 2014 because we had a number of people that were in our custody that were um, diagnosed with a mental illness and were charged with low-level offenses, and they kept cycling in and out of the jail. And so we said we have to do more to support them when they're released from us so they don't continue to cycle in and out. So we started cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and we, we took them to a separate area of the jail, I should say, as well. And it was an area that was more conducive to, I think, therapy, a nice green area. It used to be our boot camp. And we offered therapy, educational resources, but we also wanted them to just enjoy life. So we would have drumming classes so that they could begin to express themselves through the art of drumming. We had uh, horticulture and photography classes, things of that nature. And the most important piece, though, to this was that when they were released, we would continue to engage with them for the very first time in any correctional institution that I know about inmates would volunteer to come back to the jail for ongoing treatment. Mm. Because we said, if, if you if you can't access treatment in your community, come back to us. And, and people tend to go to where they're familiar. And they were familiar with us. So we would have alumni programs. So on Mondays, you'll see a group of gentlemen coming back to the jail for ongoing mental health services. And what we found is that at a year after release, Whereas a general population inmates that hadn't had the program, about 51% of them would return to the jail. With this mental health transition center, only 33% were returning. And we were able to help them better understand what some of those reasons were. But the, you know, more to that, even when they returned, they were out longer. They were reuniting with their families. They were getting jobs. You know, it was, um, it was incredible. And one story... I'll tell you is one gentleman um, was so successful and appreciated what we did there at the jail that he would send me his grades. When he got out of the jail, he started going to college and he said he wanted to study addiction and counseling. And so he would send his grades to me. And after about the third time he sent his grades and showing me he made all A's, I said, you know, there's something that we can do for him. And I met with him and he told me how he was just struggling. He was working two and three jobs and trying to go to school. And so thankfully, the sheriff created the second chance program where we hired him to work at the jail and, you know, where he used to, you know, come to the jail in a brown DOC uniform. Now he comes in a, in a suit and tie. So he's he's proud of himself and we're proud of him. Five, you, you spent uh, five years uh, running the place. Is that right? Under three. Actually, Under three. two years. And two years as the assistant and... Yes. So two years as the assistant executive director and two years and 10 months, but who's counting as the uh, executive director? Well, I was going to ask you about the who's counting because it's it's a really intense uh, place. You've yes. done wonderful things there, but you decided to leave. Yes. Um, and tell me what went into that decision. You know, we had gotten to a point where I felt like 
the team and I had created a national standard. We had done some great work. For the first time in over 40 years, we were no longer monitored by the Department of Justice. Um, You know, we created these wonderful programs. And I felt at that point I had done all I could do. And so it was important for me to then get back to my roots. And that was in the community. You've spoken about your own uh, experience as the child of an incarcerated father. Uh, and you've you've talked throughout this discussion about the impact on families. Yes, uh, you're now focusing on on that issue. Yes, uh, in a much more intensive way. Uh, talk about your next act here. Yes, well, I have the fortunate experience of working with Chicago Beyond. So Chicago Beyond is an organization that was created by Liz Dozier. She used to be a principal at a high school on the south side of Chicago. So many of the individuals that I was seeing at the jail that had had those histories of trauma, Liz was seeing in the high school on the front end of their involvement in the criminal justice system. So we had this, you know, this united passion for the youth that we were working with and the young adults we were working with. And, you know, when I thought about working in the community, it was important for me to work with someone that I had that connection with, someone that had that passion for really creating positive change for those youth. And so Liz created Chicago Beyond. They um, invest in nonprofit organizations so that they can really help those organizations to impact the youth that are most left behind. And they um, thus far have um, invested $30 million in those 12 organizations. But more than that, they've invested their ideas and their people. And now their their next pillar is a leadership venture. In other words, they're investing in you. Now they're investing in me. Yes. And, And talk about your idea. So I really want to create something impactful for children with incarcerated parents. You know, we've talked about my experiences with children with incarcerated parents. Liz also has a similar experience. And so, you know, knowing that this is something that I and Chicago Beyond are passionate about, we want to engage families that have had parental incarceration or are currently going through parental incarceration and better understand what that impact is. Because like I didn't want to be a statistic, I'm sure they don't either. And so those are unique experiences that I think we owe it to ourselves to really disrupt this cycle of multi-generational incarceration. Yeah, and you got through it in part, as you said earlier, because of supports. Yes. That that you had. These kids I, I you know, this is you you get to this 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 formative age you're in an environment, in, in many cases, where there is a lot of violence around you. Mm-hmm. And then you there's the absence of, more often than not, a father yes. uh, figure. Yes. Uh, that's a huge gaping hole in a young person's life. It is. And, you know... We know that right now, 2.7 million children have an incarcerated parent. And we believe that that number is an underestimation. And that's across the United States. And so it will behoove us to better understand what those real numbers are and to create that impact so that we don't have those 2.7 million children then entering into the criminal justice system. So part of it is to... Uh, is to 
to really assess what the impacts are, and part of it is to assess what can be done to intervene and, yes. and help them. Yes, yes, and not just help them, but also support the caretakers. Um, you know, my mom, like I said, she struggled, and she, you know, the strong woman that she is, we made it through, but I saw her struggle, and I know that those caretakers could could benefit from support. Now, there's great work that's already occurring with this population and great research that is being done, but we want to add to that. We want to see where those gaps are and just be able to continue to create positive impact. Were you able to do anything when you were running the jail uh, to, uh, to you, you talked about going to see your dad when you were uh, a kid and yes. you had that connection is there or did you do anything to try and create those connections while you were running the jail you know some so for example we created a, a nice play area for the kids when they were coming to visit their their loved one so that it didn't look so much like a jail. And they would appreciate it. And it was in the same building where my office was. So going in and out, that was the image that we were able to see. And that meant a lot to me and to those children. But there's still so much more that needs to be done, not just at the county jail, but on the state level. Yeah. Talk about the, the, the you talked about the, the just enormous number of people who are incarcerated yes many of whom had have families and there's a this becomes a a, a cycle yes um, talk about the impact of that because we you know we have a, a, compared to most of the rest of the world at just a, a a very very large number of people Yes, we do. We have 2.3 million people incarcerated, and most of them are incarcerated in state prisons, but a lot are incarcerated in jails. And what I think is most impactful are the number of people that cycle in and out of jails. About 10 million people every year cycle in and out of jails. And so that disrupts that family unit. And when children, again, are exposed to, you know, the trauma of, you know, seeing their loved one incarcerated and many other traumas that occur, especially in economically fragile neighborhoods, then they're at increased risk of involvement with the criminal justice system. And so, yeah, the, the impact is real. And I've seen that cycle, you know, play out. And, you know, it's it's important for us and, and to do all we can to, to interrupt it. And that's why it just became this passion that evolved from my experiences, Liz's experiences. Yeah. And, and we can do something positive with Chicago Beyond. Do you, um, do you uh, keep up with some of the people who, you, who, who were inmates at the, at the jail? And, and were there people who came through um, multiple times while you were there? Who, oh, yes. And when you saw them come back, um, yes. how, how, how hard was that? You know, it, it, it varied. The experiences varied. Some individuals, well, to answer your question, yes, there were many people that we saw cycle in and out. And, you know, some people we knew were homeless. We knew that they didn't have a job. We knew that they didn't have a support system. So we wanted to know that they were okay. And the only way we could really know that was by them coming back into the jail. And it got to a point where we would worry about people when they didn't come in, especially yeah. homeless individuals during the wintertime. Which is brutal.
brutal in Chicago. Yes, yes. And so, you know, that is that's not a healthy system, but it was it was what we experienced. And then there were those that were able to get out and stay out. And some of them did reach back. So we had a, a, my executive director's office line was on the public facing website. So people could call me directly and many former inmates did. And so um, a couple of them- what would they call about? They would call to say thank you. And, you know, that was meaningful to me because we would have very tough days. And so to sit at my desk at seven o'clock at night and get a voicemail from an inmate or his family saying thank you, that meant a lot. That meant that what we were doing was not only impactful, but it was worth it. And, um, you know, a couple of them are now working. They're back with their families. And, um, you know, we just want to, to grow that experience for more people. And those who were treated are, are, are uh, you have a sense they're maintaining the Yes, treatment? yes. I mean, we've been able to establish such wonderful partnerships with some of the community organizations that we had a wonderful referral system. Anyone leaving the jail, they were assessed before they left and they were given an appointment. And so one of those community agencies would follow up with them within 48 hours to be sure we help them. We even had a van that was donated to the sheriff's office where we created transportation services for individuals to get to those appointments. And we also created community mental health uh, um, centers in the community so people that were in need of treatment could get it, you know, even if we were the ones to provide it. Um, So, yeah, it's... um, I I mentioned the cuts earlier. How how, uh, how have they... Have have those cuts been... uh, repaired and what what is the funding situation now for the kinds of services that you think are needed you know the community agencies still struggle they're they're trying to bounce back it's very difficult but we have a, a wonderful collaborative system where we've built coalitions and you know and i say we now because i'm a part of this community through this leadership venture with chicago beyond but you know those community agencies, they have so much demand that's put on them that they do need more resources. Um, but they're working with what they have, and they're doing a tremendous job. Because we talk you know, so often about crime and violence, this seems like a tangible way to intervene and, and break those cycles as we discussed. Yes. It seems like a not just a humane investment, but a smart investment. It is. It's fiscally responsible. And like you said, it's humane. You know, I don't think any one of us would want our loved one incarcerated to get treatment. You know, that's not what we would want for our family members. So I don't understand why we would, you know, allow that to happen to the stranger. How did the experience at the jail uh, change you? You know, it, it made me more aware of how people can be positively impacted if they have enough resources. You know, if they have a support system, if they have the opportunities for a quality education, if they have the opportunities for quality employment. You know, there's one organization that stands out to me that um, Chicago Beyond is supporting, and it's the Story Catchers Theater. And they work with justice-involved youth, and they really help them 
post-release. So these are individuals, again, that have experienced trauma, but they, they target that trauma treatment through a different angle. They help them write their life story, and then they commit that life story to original musical theater. And then they're paid for that. So they have post-release employment. You know, those are the things that we have to do to be proactive about interrupting this cycle. You know, target employment, target treatment, and continue to be there. You know, that means a lot for those youth. Um, I actually saw them perform. Yes. It was powerful. They're incredible. It's so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Well... Speaking of inspiring, you are a great inspiration. I know that the young people who you came into contact with at the university uh, came away with a, a, a sense of mission. Thank you. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I have to say that to turn your own, your own struggles and your own challenges uh, around in a way that... Uh, benefits others is, yes. is is really a wonderful story thank you so uh we're look we're, we're looking forward to seeing what you do with chicago beyond and what kinds of uh supports you can build for these young people who are um really collateral damage in yes. our criminal justice system interestingly you before we go uh, i know you had some thoughts on what we now the the, the story we're now in which is the separation of these uh, families oh, yes. seeking asylum from their uh, from their children, yes. and um, you had an in interesting observation about some of the language that the uh, director of uh, Homeland Security used in talking about this. Yes, you know there are parallels between what we see happening at the border and what we see happening in Chicago every day, and while I'm you know, cheerleading the voices that are sounding the alarm for the separation of families at the border. I also want us to be cognizant of what is happening here with the separation of families on the south and west side of Chicago in particular, and not forget that any separation of the family has detrimental impact to not just that person that you are trying to, to incarcerate, but to that family unit, particularly that child. So, you know, continue to ring the alarm, but also not let's not forget Chicago. Well, those, uh, those kids have a powerful advocate in you. Yes. And uh, as I said, I look forward, we all look forward to see how, how, wh how and what you do, how you do and what you do. And Thank you. The impact Thank you. that you're going to have, but you, you, you are an impactful person. Thank you very much. It means a lot to hear you say that. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.